Welcome to my nameless podcast that is devoted mostly to geeky things. I'm your host, Tom Wade, and the goal of this podcast is to talk about the things we love. Movies, comic books, books, TV shows, music. And hopefully in each episode we can share in a topic or two uh, the love of the things that bring us this joy. Welcome to episode number eight. Uh, we're continuing my look at some of my favorite Christmas stories with this week uh, looking at three films, uh, one being the animated Klaus and the movie Elf. And we're going to start with a focus on the Frank Capra classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And yes, I'm going to spoil these films. If you've not seen them, you might want to go check them out before you listen. Um, so while this has been a regular Christmas feature for most of my life, so while It's a Wonderful Life has kind of been a background feature of Christmas for really my entire life. I didn't actually see the movie until I was in my 30s. And my perception was that it was going to be kind of a cloying feel-good film that just got played every year because it took place on Christmas and was going to make it, you know, just be this, well, you know, lame Christmas movie. And then I actually watched it. So based on the short story, The Greatest Gift, uh, RKO Pictures actually purchased the rights for the film uh, for Cary Grant. And early drafts actually had George Bailey as a uh, disgraced suicidal politician. Uh, after a time, RKO set the film aside and Cary Grant moved on uh, as people of classic films know he went on to another Christmas classic called The Bishop's Wife. But when director Frank Capra returned from fighting in World War II, he started his own studio called Liberty Films. And the studio signed a deal with RKO uh, for about nine films. And one of the ones they gave him to take a look at was The Greatest Gift. Uh, and Capper was interested and started working on drafts with several different writers uh, as time passed. Uh, it was a struggle, um, and Capper was even accused of being basically a horrid man by uh, one of the screenwriters, Francis Goodrich. Uh, Goodrich and her husband, Albert Hackett, um, ended up getting the screenplay credit. Uh, and later writers, such as uh, Joe Swisher, um, who was a friend of uh, Hackett and, and, and Goodrich, uh, had their friendship damaged because of that credit. Now, Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda were actually both in consideration with Fonda getting a role in another film that basically conflicted with its wonderful life's uh, planned sh shooting schedule. And so... Capra had actually worked with Stewart previously on two different films, 
and did see him as kind of the ideal everyman for this role. Now, upon the release, the film was actually met with a real mixed response. Um, and I think that's putting it politely. Uh, the oddest reaction was the FBI suggesting that the film was communist propaganda. And this was mainly because Mr. Potter is the richest man in town and he's the banker. And because he's the clear and obvious villain of the film, that made it communist propaganda. But ultimately, the movie fell off the public radar for decades. And it was... 30 years later, when television rights led to it being rediscovered by regular Christmas airings uh, on a yearly basis. And that film, and that allowed the film to kind of take off and gain a whole new life uh, that surprised even Frank Capra. And this is where we meet Clarence, who's an angel second class. He doesn't have his wings yet, but he gets assigned to help George. And the movie then, under this guise, gives us George's backstory as the angels are learning about George. And so the film initially picks up in the early 1900s as George is an optimistic and pretty popular young guy. Uh, and we see him saving his younger brother from drowning after falling into a hole in the ice while the kids are all out playing in the snow. Uh, and this results in his ear getting damaged. And so he's, you know, got, which comes into play later. It almost is more of a, more of a way of hinting uh, or, or making it clear later in the film of, certain changes, but we'll get to that. George uh, it finds himself pursued uh, as, as a kid by both Violet, who becomes kind of the town flirt, and uh, Mary, who's the good girl, you know. But one of the things I do like about this film is Violet isn't really portrayed as a bad person. She's, you know, it's. I think it's pretty clear that she's kind of the, she's, she gets around, but the film never really plays out that she's a bad person, just that she was ultimately never right for George. And early, and one of our first experiences of what kind of person George is going to be is that his boss, Mr. Gower, uh, is the local pharmacist, and he gives medication to George to deliver to a uh, family for their sick young child. And he notices, A, that there's a note on the counter that Mr. Gower has received that his son has been killed in, uh, I believe, World War One, And the he realizes that something doesn't seem right about the pills that were selected. He he goes he goes out but ends up not delivering the pills and when he returns Gower's angry because why haven't you brought the pills? Um and Gower aggressively starts smacking the kid, smacking George Bailey. Uh but George is like I, 
there's something wrong with the pills. I know you're sad. I know you didn't mean to, uh, but there's something wrong with the pills. And when Gower checks, he realizes that, yes, that, that if these pills had been delivered, that sick child would have been killed. He would have been poisoned to death. And so he's instantly, you know, remorseful. He feels awful um, because he is, he's grieving. Now, George, on the one hand, throughout the film, he has these hopes uh, to travel the world and really be rich. He's always wishing he had a million dollars. Uh, his father, however, owns the local savings and loans and works to help people escape from the weight and suppression, uh, oppression from the richest man in town, the local banker, Mr. Potter. And this shapes George. He tends to see his father as kind of this giant hero. But then when his father has a stroke right before George can leave for college, George makes an impassioned defense for keeping the savings and loan going, but does such a good job of it that the board votes in agreement with him as long as George runs the show. And so... As much as he wants to go off to college, George sacrifices those plans. And then his brother makes a deal with him. His brother, Harry, makes a deal that he'll take over the savings and loan after he finishes college. And then George can go and start pursuing his dreams. But when Harry returns from college, he introduces a wife. And uh, her father's offered Harry a, a job with a great future. And George asks her, even though Harry assures, hey, you know, I didn't say I'll take the job. I, I owe you. George asks Harry's wife if it's good. And when she tells him what a promising, you know, what, what a good job opportunity this is, he can't stand in Harry's way. And so he doesn't ask him to give it up. He again sacrifices his plans. George eventually falls in love with Mary, and on their wedding day, the bank calls the savings and loans debts, and there starts to become a run. The bank actually closes for a week, and people are getting panicked. And so the to keep the business from closing, George and Mary end up sacrificing their honeymoon and the money they got from their wedding to keep other people in, uh, you know, from losing homes or, or a lot so that other people can buy their meals. It's, it's a really fun scene as you watch uh, them just, you know, suddenly realizing what can we do to close on time and not lose this business? What, but at the same time, help the people who we serve. And this is kind of just how things go. George has, you know, is constantly, George and Mary constantly sacrifice. And as they start having children, uh, he just, he becomes the savings and loan guy. He keeps that business going and he's serving his family and friends. But he settles into a fairly peaceful life. 
So you might be going, okay, so why is George needing this heavenly intervention? Uh, what's brought him to a point of despair? Well, his uncle Billy, who works at the savings and loan with him, has lost their bank deposit of $8,000. He accidentally leaves it in a newspaper at the bank and it ends up in the hands of Mr. Potter. And Potter sees an opportunity here and proceeds to tighten the grip on Bailey and the savings and loan. And he sets in motion the threat of fraud and uh, on the part of ba George Bailey. Um, and with the fear of both jail and humiliation, George lashes out at people around him, uh, even going as far as to when he discovers his little daughter Zuzu is sick, he finds out that the teacher didn't, the teacher didn't, uh, you know, maybe make her button up her jacket because she wanted to keep a flower she was given safe. And so he blames the teacher and he curses out the teacher and ends up in a bar where he gets punched by the teacher's husband. He crashes his car. He is feeling completely at the end of his rope. And he comes to a bridge and he looks and he realizes that maybe he's worth more dead and uh, gets him out of the water. And as they warm up and start to dry their clothes, well, George mocks Clarence because Clarence is very open about being an angel. And he's like, okay, you're, you're just crazy, I guess. Um, but then he makes a comment that really the world would be better if he had never been born. And that gives Clarence an idea. There's a gust of wind. And then suddenly, George finds that his split lip is no longer bleeding. And he can hear out of his damaged ear. And as they walk out into the streets, George can't find his crashed car. And when they go to the local bar uh, owned by Mr. Martini, it's now not the happy fun gathering place that George Bailey knew. It's a loud and bombastic party, but everyone seems meaner and nobody even recognizes George. And when he sees Mr. Gower, the pharmacist in the bar, well, Gower's a stumbling drunk who's mocked by all the other patrons uh, and especially Nick, the bartender. And Nick explains that Gower went to prison for years for poisoning a child. And as George wanders Bedford Falls, nothing is really the same. The community's a bit seamier and a lot more cynical. In fact, it's not even Bedford Falls, it's Pottersville. His brother died as a child and never then went on to serve in the military or become a war hero, which resulted in men who he saved in the original timeline all dying as well. His mother doesn't recognize him, of course, and 
She's a darker and less trusting person. Uncle Billy was put away in an asylum. And the worst thing of all, Mary never, Mary never got married. She's a 30-something old maid and works, she works at the library, people. Yeah, I, I'm not saying there's not some anachronistic bits in this film. <laughs> but still, anyways, uh, the town thinks this guy is some sort of freak, some sort of lunatic. And so George runs off being chased by the town's only police officer, Bert. At the bridge again, George starts begging God and Clarence to give him his life back. Please, he wants to live. He he now understands that, that it's better if he's there, that the world isn't better without him. George is shocked because Bert recognizes him. And then he realizes he can't really hear out of his one ear that split lip is back. And so he starts running down the streets of Bedford Falls, declaring his love for the town and its people, even running up to Mr. Potter's window, saying that he loves the bank and everybody in it. It's awesome. Everything's great. And Mr. Potter bitterly, you know, laughs him off with, yeah, you'll be in prison. <laughs> and he returns home to see his family, ready to accept the consequences, even if they're unjust consequences. It's not his fault. He didn't lose this money. He didn't do anything corrupt. But he's willing to face the possibilities that he might end up in jail. He just wants to see his family again. And then Mary comes through the door and the town is flooding in behind her. Everybody has heard that there's an issue that needs to be resolved and people are, are coming in and giving their money and giving some money and making a donation to help make up for this loss. And even people from out of state, friends that went on to have the exciting lives that he always wanted, that George Bailey always wanted, are are coming, are, are calling in to say, hey, here's here's a bunch of money. And so they're overflowing with you know the generosity and love that's this town, this community. He has this renewed love of life that just is such a it, it, it's really infectious, and it's something I really, really enjoy in those moments. Now, again, there are some things that just feel like they are out of, out of another time. Things, honestly, that are just hard to accept. I mean, Mary is played by Donna Reed, and in this movie, she's like an ethereal beauty. Uh, uh, so the idea that she'd become this lonely spinster, if not for George, seems kind of hard to buy into. I mean, she clearly had hopes and dreams before George. Surely she would have still had them. And then also there's, uh, you know, a scene where Mary is in a compromising uh, situation uh, where she and George are, are, are in 
had fallen into a pool and so there she's in a robe and he's in like football a, a football uniform well the robe accidentally gets pulled off and she's hiding in the bushes and george who could remedy it by handing her the robe doesn't i mean this isn't revenge of the nerds levels but still it's a mo it's this one moment in the film where George just comes across as a creep. Um, and then of course they, they quickly kill that scene with uh, people pulling up to grab George because his father's had, had his stroke, you know, cutting that scene short. But I think the, the hardest part uh, for me is really that early scene with Mr. Gower, because he sends George out to deliver the medicine and, George actually realizes something's amiss and goes to talk to his dad about it instead of delivering it. But before he can explain anything to Mr. Gower, Gower's just angrily grabs him, shakes him, starts hitting his head. Uh, I mean, he's physically abusing his employee. And I just don't know that, I mean, really? Is that, was that acceptable to people back then? Uh, I mean, I was a child in the dawn of the 80s, and I got slapped by a teacher in grade school for not paying attention. My parents did not find that acceptable. Uh, so I'm I, I just have a hard time believing it was cool with people that an employer could beat their employee at that, even, even in the, the 20s. I get the, the film is playing this out as Gower being just devastated by the death of his son. I, I do understand that, or actually, uh, this would be pre-20s, I guess. Um, but it's still, uh, and they do make him massively repentant when he realizes that George is right. But I just, I tell you, I, I have a hard time on that one. But why do I love this film so much? Well, what is it about the story that appeals to me? I think it can be so very easy to feel like our lives have no impact. Like we don't have value. And I think in a time of a pandemic, it's even easier to feel that disconnectedness. While Capra stated that he claims the film was made in part to feed the notion of the individual's belief in themselves and to combat a modern trend towards atheism, I think the film kind of fails on that front because George Bailey is a man who wants to escape and enjoy this life in a way that only being rich can. He wants the million dollars. He wants what Mr. Potter has. And at one point in the film, Potter tempts George with everything he wants. A high-paying job with the bank that'll allow him to travel the world with his wife and have a nice fancy home for their kids. And George is genuinely tempted. He almost, for a, for a brief moment, like Data in Star Trek First Contact, is tempted by that offer. But then he realizes he would be selling his soul to the capitalist and corporate devil. And this isn't Potter realizing the error of his ways. This is Potter trying to own and beat George Bailey.
it's one of those situations where it might be less costly for him to spend money on George than to try and get rid of him through other means. The story of George Bailey, it's one of putting the needs of your community and your family and your friends and the people that matter to you ahead of your personal gain. Every time George has an opportunity to serve himself, he weighs the possibility. And when he knows it would be harmful to walk away, he chooses to put aside his more selfish desires, those goals. He even fights with his attraction to Mary because he sees her as an interference for his plans because he's unable to see the possibility of a partnership with her. And yet when he relents, it makes his world better. And Mary is revealed on their wedding day to be of a very similar mind to George. You know, she's the one who offers their honeymoon money to help the townspeople during that run on their wedding day. Uh, the theology, uh, really, on the the theology of the film is pretty simple-minded and not what you'd call accurate. Um, and frankly, I find the film's message of value in the life we have in the here and now to not be a uniquely Christian one uh, or even religious at all. I think there's, I, I think that's just a fundamental truth. What the film shows us is that even moments that might seem less than important to us in a given moment may impact more people than we know. I find that to be, I find that to have an inspirational aspect to it. And the notion that we can matter in ways we can never even imagine gives me hope and joy. And I do love the supernatural ang angle. Uh, I don't believe in angels, but it is fun to watch a story with magical characters. Uh, that's really, uh, for me, magical Christmas stories are the ones that appeal to me the most. Now, as I noted earlier, like, Every year, it seems like people discover that the film's a lot darker than they expected. And this year, I saw someone say the film is bad because Potter doesn't pay any price for his treachery. I, but I don't think that's really a knock on the film, to be honest. I think that that's one of those elements that's very real. Uh, it's a painful and cruel reality that men like Potter often get away with their schemes, even if the schemes fail. So they don't pay a price when they're caught. It's a Wonderful Life is both darker than you might expect for a Christmas film, but it's also a warm-hearted and hopeful look at the differences we can make in each other's lives. And, you know, my holiday season just never feels quite complete without a viewing. Uh, I would like to note that uh, there is a 4K restoration uh, on 4K Blu-ray that came out this year. Looks beautiful. I really, I watched it. 
and, and only the black and white version is in the restored 4K, which is fine. I think really you should watch. I don't think the colorized version. It just feels weird. Uh, the the film is so well made. It's well shot, uh, well acted, and this 4K restoration really, really benefits this film. Now, there's another recent film from 2019 that has some similar themes. Uh, it's the animated film Klaus on Netflix. I watched this last year and really found it to be touching and entertaining. So Jesper has lived a life of luxury and privilege. Uh, his father has gotten him into a prestigious academy he runs for the mail service, but there he's just lazy and uses his, his uh, power and prestige to avoid any kind of work or learning. And so in a move to teach his son some responsibility, he assigns Jesper to a remote island uh, and gives him one year to amass 6,000 letters from that island. Except he arrives to discover there are two feuding clans and nobody uses the mail service. It's this gloomy, gloomy town. There's no color or life. Everybody seems mean and cruel. Even the kids are, 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 are harming people. It's, 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 whoa, wow. I mean, like, this is not a town you'd want to live in. He discovers that there's a teacher in town, but she's not really teaching. She's selling fish because no students ever show up because nobody sends their kids to school. And then one day, he runs into an old toy maker and starts to think. He gets an idea on how to get letters generated by having the kids write letters to Klaus asking for toys, behaving better. They start doing good deeds so that they can tell Klaus how they've done these good deeds. Once, once they establish that maybe if you're not so nice, you don't get toys, well, then all the kids start trying to be nice. And as the kids start to behave, the adults start to be nicer. The teacher suddenly finding that she has students. And at first she's kind of like, oh, this is, this is frustrating. But as the kids want, start to want to learn and be enthused by learning, she regains her joy as a teacher. Of course, the, the clans don't like this. They don't like what's happening to their town. And they go after trying to stop Jesper and Klaus, but it's just, it's a beautifully animated film. It's got a 2D animation look. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if it is 2D animated, if it, or if it's digital, but made to look 2D, um, but it looks remarkable. It's, it's a beautifully, uh, the, the aesthetics of this film are just beautiful. And it's fun as you watch the town and the just the pictures in general, it goes, the color schemes start going from gray and dull tones to more and more vibrant life. And the the story of Klaus, the you know, as you learn more about him is is just touching. And as everybody comes together, the Klaus has 
this saying that initially he just says someone once told him that one good deed results in like the return of another. I can't believe I just watched this like <laughs> today. <laughs> I can't remember the exact line. Um, but there's just a, a warm hearted nature. And it's funny because all this good comes about while the whole time Jasper's really just trying to get off the island. He wants to get to his 6,000 letter limit so he can go back to the easy life he missed so much. And yet, as he's doing all this selfishly, it's actually profoundly changing this town for the better and having a beautiful impact on the world around him to the point that he realizes he's not, maybe that's not, uh, that should not be his goal. Maybe this town should be his goal. His friends that he's making, the people whose lives he's touching, his selfishness ironically brings about goodness. And really, I, you've got... Uh, You've got Jason Schwartzman as the uh, as Jesper, and he's he's really good in this, very entertaining. Uh, and he's funny, he's kind of snarky, but really, I, my, I mean, J.K. Simmons has this perfectly gruff approach that when he starts out as this mysterious guy, you don't really know who or what he is, or and then as he moves from mysterious to this kind and friendly person, it's just so effective, that performance from J.K. Simmons. This really is a, it's a wonderful film that can be enjoyed uh, by the family in the holiday season. I would really recommend it. I think this has the potential to be one of those movies that you watch every year, just because it's Christmas time. And lastly, this week, I wanna talk about a Christmas movie that really surprised me. Now, when I saw Elf in 2003, I wasn't a huge Will Ferrell fan. I actually kind of found him kind of annoying. Uh, he's grown on me over the years, but uh, when I went into the film, it was with some hesitation. And yet, this has since then become a favorite Christmas movie for me to watch at some point in December. Elf is a whimsical story that plays into Farrell's uh, maniacal performance tendencies and in the most positive way. Now, the story is that Buddy is a human child who is accidentally brought back to the North Pole as an infant uh, when he crawls into Santa's uh, gift sack. Now, in the North Pole, he's raised by an elf as that elf's son. So Buddy grows up oblivious to the fact that he's not an elf, and it's only in adulthood that he discovers and is horrified to find out that he's a human. And then when he finds out his father is on Santa's naughty list, well, he goes on a mission to reunite with his dad and redeem him. But Buddy's in for a real shock when he finds that the world doesn't have much Christmas spirit. 
It's cold and greedy. And Buddy is so sweet and naive that he's just not really prepared for it. But the thing is, is Buddy actually has a much bigger effect on the world around him than the world impacts him as far as things go. Will Ferrell is, is really what makes this film work. Uh, I mean, Buddy is just insanely sweet and full of holiday joy. And it's really infectious for the viewer. Uh, directed by John Favreau, the film is this just wonderful fairy tale quality uh, that juxtaposes a Rankin-Bass-inspired North Pole, which is just so fun because you've got like these, you know, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer-styled uh, characters that interact with Buddy uh, in the North Pole. And it's just a, a, a lot of fun. And then when he comes to the real world and discovers that the animals uh, are not necessarily cute, adorable, friendly chatterboxes, um, makes, for, uh, makes for some great uh, moments there. Uh, James Kahn plays the father, uh, uh, Walter. And he's a man who just has no real time for his family, so he's neglecting them. And he's focused on his business as a publisher of kids' books. There's even a moment where they discover that they've sent out a bunch of books to like a, an orphanage, um, and it's missing the last few pages. And he's like, "Well, so what?" <laughs> he that's he, he he does. It's not quality for him, and his. His wife uh, is played by Mary Steenburgen, uh, and she's the kind. She's a kind-natured person, and while she and Buddy's half brother Michael are hesitant about him at first, they very quickly warm to his oddballness, and soon uh, Michael finds himself totally drawn into the world of Buddy. I think some of the best parts of the film, though, are really just how Buddy interacts with people outside of his family. Uh, he ends up working in a department store where he develops a crush on Zoe Deschanel's uh, Jovi um, and somehow manages to always feel innocent about it. It never had, even they, they have this scene where she's using the corporate or the, the store uh, shower and Buddy's Buddy hears her singing and just in it, it comes in and the whole scene plays innocently that he's just drawn in by her singing. He has no understanding what's going on. <laughs> you know, he doesn't it doesn't occur to him that he really shouldn't be in there. And so it somehow manages to not be creepy. Uh, even though they're singing, baby, it's cold outside, eh, you know. That that's a that's a relationship that plays out very sweetly. Um, his boss uh, is, you know, his Faison Love, I believe, is the is the boss, and he he's really he's he's got some good little moments, uh, especially when Buddy go overnight does this hugely elaborate decoration of their department, and he's instantly suspects that corporate is setting him up. And uh, then there's also a really good scene where Buddy is hyped 
Because Santa's coming. Santa's coming. He can't wait. And then he sees it's not his Santa. It's a store Santa. And that just re ends up being just a highly entertaining bit of conflict there. And speaking of Santa, Ed Asner, he makes a great Santa. Uh, like I referenced with J.K. Simmons, he's, there's a gruffness, but he's still got a kindness. And then Bob Newhart is just a treat as uh, Buddy's adoptive elf dad, Papa Elf. Really, Elf is one of the few films from a more modern era that I would consider part of that Christmas classics canon. Um, I really do enjoy this movie every year. I, I just don't tire of, of, of the spirit of it. It's so joyful. So thanks for listening this week. Uh, next week, I'm going to be exploring the most haunted of Christmas tales. Yeah, I'm going to talk about not just the move, one of the movies. I'm going to talk about a lot of the movies. I'm going to talk about the book, A Christmas Carol. I truly love this story. It's my favorite, 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 favorite Christmas tale. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Again, I am Tom Wade, and I can be found on Instagram and Twitter under at Tom Wade. That is at T H O. M, as in map, W, A, D, as in delta, E. And until next time, take a moment for yourself to relax with something that brings you joy. A story, a song, some art. Maybe take several moments.